Amen. Good morning, church. Great song, great truth, right? Well, I, I made a promise last Sunday that we were going to talk about politics today. And, and that wasn't done flippantly. It comes out of our study. We've been lingering in the first seven verses of Romans 13 recently. And so I promised that we would do something really practical, uh, a ton of application related to what we've been studying. Um, and so if you're visiting with us uh, this morning or you're new, I want you to know this is not normal. Uh, we are big fans of expository preaching here at Oak Hill, but there comes a time when you take a break and you step back and you say, we need a really practical message on a particular subject. And I think it's necessary because if you haven't noticed, we live in an incredibly political world. I mean, everything today is politicized. And if you didn't realize it, in about a year, we have another election. And you think things are hot now in our country? I, I, I can't even imagine what it's going to be like a year from now. And so a couple things just uh, in anticipation of where we're headed this morning. Number one, I might anger you a little bit this morning because whenever you talk about politics, things get a little bit heated. Also, there's things I'm going to be saying this morning where it's not thus saith the Lord, it's, it's Jeff hoping to take biblical principles and apply practical wisdom to life in this world. And so if you don't know the distinction, if I stand up here and exposit a, a text of Scripture, like we've been doing in Romans 13, that says, submit to the governing authorities, you don't have a choice on that. Do you realize that? I mean, because I know I've said it, but I'm expositing what God is saying to you. Well, today, yeah, we'll do some of that as well. But some of what I'm going to share with you is, is just hopefully biblical wisdom that you can take hold of. And so you may not even agree with everything that I say this morning. And that's okay as well. We can love each other through that. So I know that's a, that's a really ominous beginning, isn't it? Sorry about that. But yeah, I think this is necessary because we live in an incredibly political world. So the topic of politics raises all kinds of moral and spiritual and practical questions for the Christian. For example, should we be for or against capital punishment? How about universal health care? Should we be supporters of public education or a progressive tax structure? What about Medicare and Social Security? Those are, have a socialist bent to them. Should we be in favor of those things? Should a Christian favor a pathway to citizenship for undocumented immigrants? Should we be for completely unfettered capitalism? How about gun control? How about environmental protections? Does a Christian have to vote for the Republican because they're the pro-life party? Does a candidate have to profess Christ in order to earn our vote or at the very least have some moral credibility before we vote for them? Or is it better for us to sort of toss all that aside and just vote really practically and pragmatically for the, the person who has a background in success in diplomacy or business? Guys, there are so many questions that we could ask this morning. And no doubt they're all complex and difficult to answer. And part of what makes politics so hard for the Christian is the fact that we are all trained to go to Scripture for answers, but you're not going to be able to open up your Bible and find a specific binding passage that tells you how to answer those questions. Wouldn't that be nice if, if Scripture was written that way, to give us every answer simply? But it doesn't. I read an article this week by an author who described America, American Christians' view of the relationship between faith and politics. He described it as a big pot of stew. He said, it's a pot that's been simmering for centuries, and it has in it all of our favorite phrases related to government. Render unto Caesar, submit to the governing authorities, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. No law respecting the establishment of religion, of the people, by the people, for the people. I pledge allegiance to the flag, in God we trust. And these phrases, he says, are like the potatoes and the carrots and the chunks of meat in the stew, and they all cook together, and each brings a certain flavor to the stew. And then you throw in a, a little bit of a, a, the pop ideologies that are floating around out there, and you add some political correctness, and then you, you go to your favorite TV cable news pundit, and you throw in his or her opinions as well. And at the end of it, what you have is this supposedly delicious political and philosophical stew ready to eat. 
And so when the debate arises concerning a difficult topic like abortion or like same-sex marriage or immigration or health care, what we do with this stew is we grab our soup ladle and we dig into it and we pull out what? A sort of a mishmash, convoluted set of ideas that, that sometimes fails the, the coherency test because we haven't thought it through very well. We tend to kick around big concepts here in America. We talk about freedom. We talk about responsibility and justice and equal opportunity, but oftentimes we don't even know how to apply those things to the daily issues of political life. So for the Christian, navigating today's political life is not easy. If you're feeling alone in that, don't. It's not an easy thing to do. Now, am I going to be able to address every one of those issues and questions that I raised? No, because first of all, the answers to those things are not simple or are they short. And I promised our elder team I'm only going to do one message on politics I mean, this could be an entire series, right? But more importantly, I don't want to stand up here and just tell you what to think. What I want to do is develop for you a a framework for thinking through these issues on your own so that as you study the scriptures and you seek the Spirit's guidance, you apply biblical wisdom and you ask questions of experienced people and elders and people of that nature, you can come to the right conclusion. So Lord willing, that's what we're going to try to do at least partially this morning. Now, here's an obvious statement that we're going to start with. You ready? In increasing measure, we Christians find ourselves less and less comfortable in this culture. And more and more, we feel ourselves out of place in the political landscape of the day. True? We feel less comfortable in this culture, and we feel more like a fish out of water related to our politics. And you think about it, that's a strange thing considering where America started. You think about this social experiment we call America 243 years ago. Now, as you probably know, you've probably heard most of our revered founders, they weren't believers. They were mostly deists or enlightenment thinkers. They were products of their day. They had no intention of establishing a national religion, certainly not the national religion of Christianity. But having said that, they did follow a philosophical tradition that had several important Uh, overlaps with Protestant theology. They wanted to give broad freedom to Americans to worship as they see fit and actually play a role in influencing the government that was flourishing at the time. And so what we see in our founding documents is language that acknowledges a creator and and is sort of, I would say, Christian-ish, if that makes any sense. And within that framework, Christians have gone through various periods of time of very... um, direct political engagement, times when, when the church was actually driving culture. And, and the latest, of course, is what we call the Christian right that was led by pastors and pundits and politicians back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. These were, these were guys that saw the excesses of what had happened in the 60s. Think about the Vietnam War and the sexual revolution and the legalization of abortion and the permissiveness of the culture. These things were a massive shock to America's system back in that day. So this thing called the moral majority, the Christian right, rose up, and they set out to win what they called the culture wars. The culture wars of the 80s and the 90s. And now we look back on it, and guess who lost? The church did. Yeah, we lost those culture wars. Why? Well, I think we lost due to a number of factors. Number one, a flawed strategy. Number two, a condescending tone, a judgmental, harsh tone that came from churches. A moralistic impulse, not really reaching the heart, but just trying to clean up behavior. And flat-out hypocrisy, which to this day, for most lost people, is the number one reason why they don't want to hear about Jesus. They've seen too much hypocrisy. And so as we sit here today in 2019, it's become pretty clear that American values no longer mirror biblical values, and that Christians are on the outside looking in. Now, think about how complex the idea of America is to begin with. Think about this social experiment. You know, most of the founders did not expect it to last. They're pretty clear on that in their private writings. That a group of assorted people from all kinds of faith backgrounds and some that didn't have any faith at all could come together and try to establish a just nation on a set of universal principles like life liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That is a pretty remarkable thing. And so they said, look, we may not agree exactly on who God is, but we do agree on a set of shared values, things like the dignity of the individual and limited government 
and private property rights and freedom of the conscience. And values like those have bound Americans together for more than 200 years. Sort of carried along by this really important Latin phrase, e pluribus unum, which means what? Out of the many, one. That we would be a diverse nation but come together as one. Folks, today that idea is dying. That idea is dying quickly. So what happened? Did you know that George Washington actually warned us about this day? Some of you probably studied this in school. Back in 1796, after he'd been in public service for 20 years, George Washington stepped down. He stepped out of power. He may be the only uh, uh, government official who's ever done that, been the absolute top and said, nope, I'm stepping away. No, thank you. Don't need any more power. That's very unusual. And in his farewell address to the nation, he said that religion was the indispensable support of all national unity. Religion was the indispensable support of national morality and of national prosperity. Religion. If that dies, we die. He and John Adams warned that America's particular brand of government would never be sustained unless it was inhabited by men of religious virtue. And today, as we look down the road and we see this, this plummeting down the road of secularization and away from the church and our culture unraveling, it seems that their words are ominously becoming true. See, there was once a time in America when things got really bad that we would pull together as a people, right? When tragedy strikes, when difficulty comes, no matter what grievances we had with one another, we come together. And some of you remember 9-11 was the last time that really happened, where we laid aside our partisan beliefs and we came together as a people. Have you noticed that's not happening anymore? I mean, even just recently, we had three, count them, three mass shootings in one week. Did we come together? Absolutely not. In fact, the partisanship got worse. We are at each other's throats more than ever. So here's why I bring this up. We need to sort of diagnose what's going on in our culture. Why? Because we as Christians ought to be students of the culture. If we're going to evangelize, if we're going to share the gospel, we've got to be students of the human condition, and we've got to be students of our culture so that we know how to approach these things. And so if we're going to do that, it's important for us to have that basic understanding of the political problem that's happening in our nation right now. Sociologists have identified this, by the way. They've given it an actual name, and it's called fragmentation. Fragmentation happens whenever a people are increasingly less capable of forming a common purpose and living out a common life together. It happens when people feel less and less bound to their fellow citizens in a common allegiance and instead look for a particular grouping that they can pledge their allegiance to within the larger population. This grouping might be based on ethnicity or race. It might be rooted in political ideology, either liberal or conservative. It could be a grouping based on something like, like gender or sexual orientation. But what comes out of it is this thing that we're hearing about all the time now is called identity politics. Everything is related to your identity now. And you're sort of forced into these tribes, into these groups based on those sometimes immutable characteristics. More and more we're saying this, I'm not comfortable in America. And so this group is my community. I identify with them and them alone and nobody else. And I'll lock arms with and defend my group against everybody, even against other American citizens. And if necessary, I will go on the offensive. I will attack and destroy other groups if somehow it can help me to attain power. And that's really what's happening in our culture today. We are in a struggle for power. Who is going to call the shots as these various groups look down the road? Obviously, the result of this is catastrophic for a nation that began with this e pluribus unum concept from Many, one, is now from many, still many. And that does not bode well for our country. One author described this as, think, picture this, a giant ice flow that's in the process of being broken up. Some of you guys watch Discovery Channel penguins, right? <laughs> giant ice flow that's being broken up. And what we're seeing is people huddle in groups like penguins on various ice flows as it breaks up. 
And, and, and they're all jumping on their ice flow, and as those ice flows drift apart. Some of them are colliding with each other. Others are just drifting away, and there's no way to piece it all back together again. This is the tribal instinct of fallen humanity. We've come to believe that our tribe gives us meaning. Our tribe gives us purpose. It gives us value. Our tribe gives us a moral code to live by. And in the absence of what George Washington called this common sense of religion and religious virtue, each tribe is now defining its own morality. Each tribe is defining its own list of virtues. And so this principle that we're already familiar with in the church is community matters. Community is where people tend to find their own you know, spiritual and moral moral moorings. Identity politics is where a post-religious society goes. It's where a post-truth society, it's where a post-modern world goes to find a moral code, even if it's totally contrary to what God has spoken. They will find it in their group. And by the way, the church has to rise above this. I don't have time to go into this in detail, but one of the unfortunate realities that we're dealing with today is that churches are beginning to go down that same rabbit hole mirroring the the groupings and the tribalism of the culture churches are starting to do that oftentimes by by race and ethnicity and then we have interfamily arguments about it in public on social media in the blogosphere and so the world looks at this and they go look if this is what religion is and if that's their Jesus why would I why would I need it and so we got to knock that off. we got to transcend all of those, those categories and those tribes to be one in Christ. That's for another day. But this may surprise you. Americans are not any uh, less religious than they've ever been. They're still a re- we're still a religious people. The difference now is twofold. Number one, Americans now, by and large, and surveys bear this out, they'll say, religion is fine, but it's a private matter. Keep it to yourself. Do whatever you want in private, but do not bring your religion into the public square. That's the first change that we're seeing. The second one is this. Religion has simply shifted from God to another deity. And what is that deity? Think about it. When God gets pushed out of the way, where do lost people turn for help? The government. The government has the answers. The government will solve my problems. And so politics is the new religion. Go on Twitter. Turn on cable news. Politics is fast becoming the dominant religion in America. So when we experience the tragedy of three mass shootings in one week and everybody jumps onto Facebook and Twitter and starts to cry and rant and emote all their feelings and all that, what do you see all over the place? Pass a bill to fix this. Come on, legislators, do something. What should we do? I don't know, but do something. Fix the gun problem. What happens when people come to realize that government can't deliver answers and that government was never designed by God to save anyone? People are going to come crashing down, aren't they? So listen, America is still full of faith. It's just a misplaced faith. Know that as you're sharing the gospel. Grab your Bibles. I want you to go to the gospel of Matthew. Yeah, we're going to read some scripture. (laughs) Matthew chapter 22 By the way, I'm not trying to bum you out this morning. Uh, In fact, quite the opposite, because here's the thing. When there's a a, a religious vacuum in culture, who has the answers that people are actually seeking? We do. So this is an awesome opportunity. This is a great time to be a Christian in America. A great opportunity to step into that and say, look, hey, government's not solving your problems, is it? Can I help you? Can I show you how you can be saved? Can I show you the answers to all the questions that you're asking? Man, what a great time to be alive. I'm not pessimistic at all from a gospel perspective. All right, Matthew 22, go to verse 15. I want to look at what our posture is towards government. We've already seen in recent weeks in Romans 13, the big word was the S word, remember? Submit to the governing authorities. Thus saith the Lord, submit. What else? Now, I read this Passage, I think, last Sunday, uh, but it's worth looking at again, and we'll, we'll, we'll just draw some principles out of it. Matthew 22, verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. 
And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you're truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one, for you're not partial to any. Oh, they're buttering them up, aren't they? Tell us then, what do you think? Here's the trap. Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? Okay, so they're trapping him. Either he's going to defy Rome, which is a, a legal problem for him, right? Or he's going to somehow side with the Romans and, and anger the Jews. But they're, they're setting a trap here. But Jesus perceived their malice. And he said, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, great understatement here, they were amazed. And leaving him, they went away. Oh, he confounded us again. Now, we're tempted to read this narrative and interpret it like this. There it is. This particular, isn't that a very sophisticated graphic? Thank you very much. <laughs> Grant's cringing right now. Uh, we're tempted to read this. Okay, there's two spheres in the world. There's God and religion, and there's government and politics, and those don't intersect whatsoever, right? But there's a few things we have to keep in mind as we, as we read this narrative in Matthew 22. First of all, where did Caesar come from in the first place? Was he able to create himself? Obviously not. He was created by God in his image according to his grace, right? So Caesar, although he's got tons of power, he owes his very breath to God. Every breath, right? Second question, where did his power come from? Why is he, of all men, emperor in Rome? Answer, God. We learn this Romans 13, 1, right? God establishes all government by his will and for his purpose. So Caesar's ruling only because a higher power ordained it. So really the picture of Matthew 22 ought to look like this. Everything is swallowed up in God's domain. All government and all politics. Jesus is the authority to which all authorities must answer. He is the one that will ultimately judge every ruler and every government. So what does this mean for us? Well, using that graphic on the screen, it means that in order for us to live and breathe and have our life here under God's sovereign rule, we are going to have to engage in those things, in government and politics. It's a part of our life being lived under the sovereignty of God. So two things we can't do. Number one, we can't just go, okay, well, I guess I got to be involved in this somehow. You know what? I'll just lay aside everything I know about the Bible. I'll just join with the crowd, right? And just be pragmatic about it and go with the flow. We can't do that. And secondly, we can't surrender the battle and just say, you know what? I'm going to pull away from this completely. I just want nothing to do with government, nothing to do with politics whatsoever. As if our role in America doesn't matter. Folks, it does matter. Consider historical moments all across the world when the church pulled out of public life and allowed evil to come in and, and find a place in government and in culture. Why? Because the church withdrew itself. That's dangerous stuff. And just as the early church impacted the culture in Rome, eventually overcame Rome. So we're to have a refining influence as the church in America. So we have to be engaged. Now, go back in your, in your Bible. Go back to Matthew 17. Let's look at another passage that, that helps us with this particular subject. Matthew 17, look for verse 24. Matthew 17, 24. When they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? I love this. This is sort of Jesus having a casual conversation. It's great. Hey, Simon, what do you think? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? And when Peter said from strangers, Jesus said to him, then the sons are exempt. Huh. The sons are exempt. However, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea, throw in a hook, and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and for me. Here's the question. Christian, who are you? In this world, who are you? 
What is your primary, what is your truest identity as you sit here this morning? You're a son or a daughter of the king, right? You're a citizen of his kingdom. You're a member of his body, the church. That is your primary identity. Your gender, your ethnicity, your family's culture, your socioeconomic level, however the world out there is trying to define you these days, your identity in Christ transcends all of it. In fact, and this is a hard thing for us to fathom, unless you've traveled abroad, but you share more in common with a Bible-believing Christian in Mexico or in China or in Nigeria or in Russia, you share more in common with them than you do with non-believing Americans all over this community. You believe that? If that's your primary identity, you have more in common with them than you do with your unbelieving neighbor. That's mind-blowing, isn't it? The point of this passage in Matthew 17 is that we understand that because we're sons of the kingdom, we're not ultimately bound by the things of this world because they're going to pass away someday, things like customs and taxes. But on the other hand, Jesus says, while you're down here on the earth, don't give offense. Acknowledge that the government's present rule was established by God, and therefore it's legitimate, and therefore you have to obey Jesus is saying, respect and honor the institutions of this present age. Let rulers do their job. But always remember that all of this is temporary. Don't give them your ultimate allegiance. That is for God alone. And so always approach politics and government with an eternal perspective. Does that make sense? These are important things. So with all of that platform built, let's get to some political red meat. Can we do that? How are we supposed to take on political positions based on Scripture? I'm going to give you one giant principle and a couple sub-principles and then a whole bunch of machine gun really quick principles. By the way, it's not going to be a short sermon, but you knew that. How do we do this? Well, look, we know that the Bible is the single standard that we have for all faith and practice, right? Right? And so it makes sense that we would look to Scripture even as we form our political opinions. Everything, everything should be informed by Scripture. Amen? That said, the Bible wasn't written as a political manifesto, wasn't written just for our political thoughts, so what do we do? Here's the big giant principle that we need to understand. We need to make a distinction on the issue, whether it's an issue of law or an issue of wisdom. Here's what I mean by that commands or law that we see in scripture where the word is very specific and binding on our life, those things we have to hold very firmly to, okay? But on the issues where the word doesn't speak in specific binding ways, those things we hold loosely to. Yeah, general biblical principles will guide us on those things, but the final path to applying them requires wisdom, law and wisdom. So I'll use the gun control debate. As a good illustration, this is obviously one of the hot topics that we're dealing with in our culture today. Suppose the government goes out now, because they're under a lot of pressure right now. They go out and they decide to pass a so-called red flag law. Anybody heard about this? A red flag law. A law that's going to alert the authorities when someone with a mental illness in their profile attempts to buy a semi-automatic rifle. It's going to flag them. They have a, some type of a, a, da- in a database where there's a, a potential mental condition. They go in to buy a semi-automatic rifle, and bleep, here comes the red flag. On the one hand, we say, well, all right, lives might be saved by that. Okay. That, that, I mean, that could really stop somebody who shouldn't have a killing weapon like that from killing. But on the other hand, there's a distinct possibility that authorities could take that mental illness data and abuse it, right? Use it as a political weapon against people. Violate privacy laws. And the result could be that many folks in our country could have their Second Amendment right infringed upon. So, how do we solve that dilemma? Biblically. What's the the biblical solution? See, this, this is just one example of many of where we need to think carefully. We do it, is, I'm waiting for somebody to shout out a, a passage or something. Wouldn't that be nice? A specific verse that says, on gun control. 
Now, there are biblical principles that we could bring to bear on that question, but the final answer and the political strategy for it will depend upon a whole bunch of calculations, moral, spiritual, and otherwise. In other words, wisdom is going to be required to identify the best and most godly course of action. Make sense? So there are some things that are law, but there's many more things that are wisdom. Think of some political issues that run in what I would call here. I'll I'll put up another brilliant graphic. Some political issues are what I would call dead straight line from biblical principle to a position or a policy. I mean, just straight line. That is absolutely clear, straight line. Other issues are what I would call a more jagged line, the one you see below. It's not quite so clear, and there's going to be a number of steps before you get there. We've got to be able to make this distinction. So I would argue that abortion is the first. That abortion is the murder of a human life in the womb. That makes it a straight issue, straight line issue from scripture to policy and position. Why? Because governments have, God has established governments for the purpose of defending life. Right? Especially those that are most vulnerable in our society. Babies in the womb who have absolutely no say. That is a straight-lined issue. Folks, there should be no question in any of our minds what our political stance would be on abortion. And if you, if you disagree with me on that, can we talk afterwards? It's that serious. And we should treat it that seriously. When something is this so obviously taught in Scripture, this is going to be an issue where the church has to take a stand, where we have to preach on it and teach on it, and where we have to enter into the public square and say, this is true. Because it's a straight-line issue. Does that make sense? And you too as believers, as individuals, ought to take that responsibility as well. Because you see it so clearly laid out in Scripture, and you see it so clearly violated in our culture, that you, in your particular sphere of influence, are also taking that issue. And putting it out there in the public square. And arguing for the best possible outcome. By the way, just because Christians agree on the stance of abortion, that doesn't mean we're all going to agree on strategy. Okay, so there's room for disagreement on that. That's a whole other sermon. Like, what do we actually do? We all agree on it, but how do we actually do it? So there's room for that disagreement, but not on the straight-line issue itself. Now, what about an issue like public education? Or an issue like health care? Do those things matter? Absolutely. Are there some general biblical principles that would inform a conversation that we could have? Yeah, But the path from biblical principle to political position is a jagged line. It's not a straight line. It's not as clear as abortion. So we have a biblically informed conversation about these issues, but there's going to be reason, or there's going to be reasons even Christians disagree on this, let alone out there in the world. So freedom of conscience is going to rule in those situations, and because such an issue is on a jagged line, we're not going to be as dogmatic with each other about it, right? We're not going to divide over something like, Uh, universal health care. We're not going to go out there in the public square and spend all of our political capital arguing for something that isn't really close to being a gospel issue. Does that make sense? Christians need to pick their battles carefully. That's an important principle. Issues pertaining to life. Issues pertaining to the family. Issues pertaining to religious freedom. Issues related to justice. These are the things that we need to be arguing about and arguing for. Why? Because they're straight-line issues that go from Scripture to policy. Other things we hold more loosely. Gun gun control, we hold it more loosely. Tax policy, we hold it more loosely because they depend on the application of wisdom. Folks, here's why this is so important. This is is one of the keys to unity in the church, that we can can clearly identify the essentials and the non-essentials, the things to be dogmatic about and the things to compromise on, the things to talk through, to dialogue, to persuade rather than demand. I hope that makes sense. We have heated conversations in the church today. Sometimes we we bark at each other on social media. We write uh, condemning letters against each other in the blogosphere. One man attacks his his Christian brother, as if his position on health care or tax policy is the only acceptable Christian position. And if you disagree with me, you're a heretic. Right? And we draw lines where they shouldn't be drawn. We've got to be able to define essentials and non-essentials. Should I be dogmatic on this issue? Because it's an issue of law. God has been clear on this. Or should I 
you know, agree to disagree with my brother, think the best of him, hold it loosely because this is an issue of wisdom. And in that case, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to love you and try to persuade you because I still think I'm right. That's okay. Make good arguments. But those are two very different things. We need to do them well. Okay, let me give you two other really important. So wisdom and law, those are important. That's an important principle as we look to hold political positions. Let me give you a couple others. See the second one there? Biblical context always matters. You know that. If you've been at Oak Hill for any period of time, you know that that is true. Here's one of the most common mistakes I see people making as they land on political positions. They fail to distinguish between Old Covenant and New Covenant. They fail to distinguish between what God has said to ancient Israel versus what he said to the church. They're not the same thing, are they? That's why we're dispensationalists here. They miss also the distinction between commands given to individuals versus government. And if we mess that whole thing up into one big jumble, we're going to be all over the place and we're going to end up in bad places. So take, for example, the, the issue of immigration at our southern border. Is that a hot topic issue? Wow. And I hear people say this, both unbelievers and poorly informed believers. They say, well, look, if you're a Christian, you have to be in favor of an open border. And if not, you're just a hypocrite. You're picking and choosing the verses of the Bible that you want to believe. I've heard that a hundred times. Now, oftentimes it's from unbelievers. They love to use the Bible against us. They have no idea what they're talking about. But boy, they'll latch onto a passage and they'll try to stick it to you, won't they? How do they arrive at that conclusion? Well, they go back and they dig into the Old Testament regulations that were given to who? To Israel about how God desired his chosen nation to show compassion towards the foreigner. Why? Because they were exiles at one time. So he says, show compassion to the foreigner. And they'll say, see, the Bible tells us right there, it supports my, my feelings about immigration. We should compassionately allow all foreigners into our country. Okay, but does the audience that's being written to matter here? Does the context matter? The Old Testament regulations given to Moses were for Israel under the Old Covenant, not for the church under the New Covenant. They're very different. Israel was a single nation, Chosen by God, right? And organized as a theocracy. Government and religion are one thing. And who's the king? Yahweh. That's, that's how ancient Israel was organized. What about the church? Church is not a single nation. It's a global organism. It doesn't exist under a theocracy. In fact, it flourishes under secular governments. These are two different things. And so a secular government like ours here in America should not be expected to operate as ancient Israel did. It's not a Christian nation. It's a secular government. It's designed by God to do just a few important things. We looked at it in Romans 13. To commend good in citizens and also to punish wrongdoers, right? Our government is to pursue justice in all situations, and to establish peace and tranquility or law and order for the benefit and the prosperity of its citizens. That's what our government is called to do. So immigration is a jagged line issue. It's a jagged line issue. Listen, there's good biblical reason for striving to have a border that is marked by peace and law and order. God is a God of order. There's good reasons why our southern border, if our government was being effective, we would have a peaceful process happening down there. A process of justice where things are handled fairly with integrity and compassion. But to say that our government has to open the border to everyone is not a valid biblical argument. Now, here's the thing. There is a command in the New Testament for individual Christians to love our neighbor, regardless of how they became your neighbor. Okay, so do you see the distinction between governments and individuals? It's very important to make. Our government is a secular government. It's not called to be ancient Israel. But you and me, as individual believers, are called to love our neighbor, all of them, anybody that God puts in our path, without question. Am I clear on that? Here's why that government thing makes a difference. Governments are called to law and order. You and I are called to love. 
So the distinction is this. When Jesus said, love your enemies, and if somebody strikes you on a cheek, what do you do? Turn to them the other cheek. Is that what governments are supposed to do? So North Korea hits us with a nuclear weapon. We turn the other cheek? Of course not. I mean, governments, governments go to war, right, to defend its citizens. They don't turn the other cheek. Are, are policemen supposed to never use force? Just turn the other cheek? That would be ridiculous. So what's the distinction? Jesus gave this instruction to individuals to turn the cheek, not governments. So we've got to get these things right. This is context. Who's the intended audience? Old covenant versus new. Ancient Israel versus the church. Instructions to individuals or governments. Make sense? Okay, you guys are doing good. You're hanging with me? Okay, third guideline. If you've been playing team politics, I want you to stop it. I want you to, today to stop playing team politics like the rest of the world. Newsflash, God does not have a political party. <laughs> Now, you might be able to make the case that one party is, 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 in general, more aligned with biblical wisdom than the other. But still, God is not a Republican. So, we hold party affiliation very loosely, lest we lose our integrity and begin to submit how we feel about things and think about things to the whims of party leaders. And just go with the flow because, hey, there are party leaders. Mm -mm. That's not how we do it as believers. Our culture is being devastated right now by team politics. What do I mean by that? Democrats siding with other Democrats in every situation. I mean lockstep, no matter how crazy they get, no matter how far left they get, they will not deviate from the party line, right? And Republicans defending everything that the president says and does, no matter how crude he is, no matter how insensitive he is, just because we're glad he's in power. I've heard people say this, and people I love and respect, yeah, I know he's crazy, but at least he's our crazy. Man, that is team politics at its worst, and it undercuts our integrity as believers. So on any given political issue of the day, whose side are we on? We're on God's side, period. We're not on the side of a party. We're on God's side. That means we're on the side of righteousness and justice in all situations. And listen, this actually takes all of the stress out of arriving at political positions. See, if I, if I, I, I don't care what you're registered as, but if I take that sort of a, that mantle of party affiliation off of me and I can just make decisions based on biblical principles, law and wisdom, I don't have to worry about whether I'm in line with the party or I'm part of the mainstream, or people in my party disagree with me. I don't have to worry about it because I'm trying to walk with a clean and undefiled conscience before God. And that's way more important than political party. By the way, do you know George Washington also warned about political parties? In fact, he said that's, this is the, probably the number one thing that will befell our country is the division that comes from political parties. And yet we have Christians out there doing this all the time. I want to say this um, to my fellow Republicans. We don't have to try to defend indefensible things. Stop it. Stop it. Stop defending what you know are indefensible things because you like power. Stop it. We want to have integrity. When our selected politician does something good and righteous and just, we can say, well done. But when that same politician does something which is wicked or foolish, we call that out too. We don't just walk a party line. That's integrity. And guess what? When we do that, we find it much, much easier to maintain our witness in this world. And I'll tell you what, this world is frankly very confused about evangelicals right now. And part of it has to do with the way we operate politically. So we need to get this right. All right, that's my soapbox. Um, okay, I'm running out of time. So I've got to do this real machine... <sighs> Really quick, what time is it? My watch has stopped working. Are we? Okay.
I'm going to do this. Are you ready to move fast? Okay. As Christians, we should care about working for good government. Good government. Good government is to our benefit and it's to the benefit of, of those who don't know Christ. And let's be honest, that's our harvest field, right? So we want them to benefit as well. We ought to work for good government. I so love Paul's uh, request for prayers that he writes to Timothy. I'm going to paraphrase it real quick. From 1 Timothy 5, he says, First of all, I urge that all kinds of prayers be made for all kinds of people, especially for kings and for those in power, so that we, the believers, might live peaceful and quiet lives in godliness. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God who desires all kinds of people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This is, a nutshell, is a political statement that, that Paul's making here. He says, look at the connection between praying for our leaders and us living quiet, godly lives where our gospel can go out, where we can flourish in our walk with Christ, and lost people coming to hear the truth. Guys, that is the ultimate scenario we want to see happening in America, that those things are happening. It's right there in 1 Timothy 5. See, bad governments do the opposite. Bad governments, wicked governments, they hinder the church. They hinder our witness. So we want to always battle and fight for good government. So what does that mean? Here's the principles, real fast. Number one, pick your battles carefully. I've said this already, I'll say it again. Pick your battles carefully. Make the main thing the main thing. Don't get lost into silly arguments over frivolous details. Make the main thing the most important thing. Make sense? Number two, you've got to stay informed. You've got to stay informed. There's nothing more cringeworthy than hearing or seeing a Christian dive into a conversation or into the public square and they don't know what they're talking about. Right? And they identify themselves as a Christ follower and they go out there and they just, bleh. They just don't know what they're talking about. So I said it before. We have an obligation as believers to be students of the human condition and students of our culture so that we can share our faith. So stay informed. That means you've got to set aside some time to read. And if you want resources for that, I can help you. Stay informed. Number three, make good arguments. Look, we get mocked as Christians because we don't make good arguments. We need to do better. Think things through carefully from beginning to end. Scour the word. Ask for help from somebody you can help. Seek wisdom. You've got to understand the logical and scriptural pathways to get others to see why you believe what you believe. You've got to walk them down a path to say, this is how I ended up at this position. Can I, can I show you what it says in my Bible? Make good arguments. Number four, represent Jesus well. As you make arguments, be careful not to attach Jesus' name to something he never attached his name to. Because that happens. I've seen Christians do this as well. And think social media here. If you're just throwing something out there, be sensitive to who might be reading it and who might stumble because of it. Think about it. You're throwing something out there, but it, it has no connection to the gospel or it has absolutely no biblical support. And it doesn't represent Jesus well. I mean, I tell people before you post on social media, think once, think twice, maybe sleep on it. <laughs> maybe come back to it. Maybe ask somebody, is this a wise thing to put out there? Because the world's watching, aren't they? Represent Jesus well. Have the right heart orientation. As we approach individuals, as we go into the public square, folks, the goal is not to win debates. I confess that I used to be this way. You know I confess my pugnacious spirit at times. I used to, I, I, I like to win debates. <laughs> I'm, uh, the Lord is still working with me. But I, I mean, I guess that's why I'm a preacher. I like to win debates. But that's not the goal. It, it, it does you no good to overwhelm somebody with the brilliance of your mind if they walk away going, Jesus, whatever. But you won the battle. Have the right heart orientation. The goal is to love your neighbor by pointing him to the truth using both reason and revelation. That's the goal. And to get there, your heart has to be set on love. It has to be set on compassion, on empathy, and walking a mile in your, in your friend's sandals. The term that's been thrown around, convictional kindness. The kindness of your Savior who drew you to himself and showed you such grace 
You know, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Every one of you is believers. You're the light of the world. Get out there and let your light shine. But as you do that, make sure that you're kind and gentle and compassionate with those you're talking to. Be humble. Number seven, use the tools that God has given you to affect good government, primarily your vote. Yeah, vote. Participate in government. Who should you vote for? Ooh. Turn off the recording. No. No. Again, this is not that hard. Look at the purpose of government and say which candidate best fulfills the purposes that God has laid out for government. And, and maybe, and, and, and like last time, when there's two awful choices, maybe you got to vote third party. I, I don't know, but, but look at the candidates and say, which one is going to fulfill the mandate that God has given for government best? Vote for that person. Make sense? Last one. Always have the gospel in view. In every conversation you have about politics, every time you put yourself out there in the public square to talk politics, make sure that your posture and your words and your actions are eventually going to shine a light on the gospel and on Jesus Christ. Or better yet, to building a relationship that's grounded in grace and mutual respect that's going to lead to you being a gospel witness and eventually giving you the opportunity to have a discussion about Jesus and salvation. That's even better than a, just a short-term boop conversation, but actually building a relationship with unbelievers based on grace and mutual respect where I can begin to show them what a life following Jesus looks like and eventually get to that conversation that says, here is salvation. Have the gospel in view. All right, so I know I just barely touched on a whole range of topics, and there's a whole bunch of challenges for ahead of us, friends. Listen, may the Lord give us wisdom in these areas. I'll say it again. We live in a great time in America, and we live in a great place, California, which is a wreck. <laughs> right? There's all these, these, these openings for gospel conversations. I mean, I hear about people moving to all kinds of places. Ah, stay in the battle. The battle's in California. The battle's in America. We don't even need to go overseas to share the gospel. There's so many opportunities right here. And so use politics. Work for good government. Use politics as, a, as an opening for the gospel. Be informed. Make good arguments. Love people. Amen? Amen.